This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the subject board today, a new international treaty to stop plastic pollution. The world's insurance bill for natural disasters reaches $115 billion. And Democrats are pressing EPA to go easy on the regulation of toxic chemicals. Go figure. And finally, we'll hear from an expert on children and technology, how tech is actually hampering normal development and causing a lot of psychological harm. It's a message every parent needs to hear. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so what happened in the environmental health world this week? Well, there's always a lot to choose from. The first one was published in Oz.com, written by Aurora Almendral, and the title is, A New Global Plastics Treaty is Coming for Your Bags and Bottles. Okay. The world is choking in plastic trash, and the UN wants to do something to fix it. A week-long meeting of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee on Plastic Pollution in Uruguay ended last week. It was a first formal step towards a legally binding international treaty to deal with a global plastics problem. Such a pact would be the most consequential environmental treaty in years, on par with 2015's Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The group will spend the next two years negotiating how binding the regulations will be, while most of the 1,800 attendees in Uruguay ostensibly support ending plastic pollution as a baseline Competing motives have factions pulling in different directions. Hardline countries and campaigners are pushing for outright bans on problem plastics and certain chemicals, as well as internationally set regulations and strict production monitoring. Plastics industry coalitions, which include the world's largest plastic producers like Nestle and Unilever, are calling for a focus on recycling and global targets defined by national priorities. Details of the treaty will have to be negotiated over the next couple of years. The High Ambition Coalition to End Plastic Pollution, made up of 45 countries, is calling to restrict the single-use plastics found in packaging and consumer goods. This makes up half of the plastic waste produced today. So a restriction would hugely reduce pollution, as well as force a transformation for consumers and the companies producing their goods in the way they drink bottled water, order takeout, or buy cleaning products and cosmetics. I don't usually think of Nestle. I think of Nestle as being a you know a candy company, a food company. I don't think of them as a plastic manufacturer, but I think it's because they've bought all these water companies, right? Exactly. A, a number of water bottles is just astonishing. Right. 2.5 million every hour. And that's just in the United States? Yeah. 2.5 million that's every six, hour. That's 60 million a day, every 24 hours. Yikes. I know. But we know someone who went to Uruguay, and their interest in this was the chemicals in the plastic, mm-hmm. the endocrine, yeah. especially the endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And it's, you know, once they're out in the environment, who are they harming? Well, wildlife, obviously, but it all comes around, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's going to also impact us at some well, point. I, I, I support that first group that wants, like, you know, let's just stop I where know, we are right but now. But it's interesting that they're already talking about it like it's the, you know, it's the same thing as the Paris Agreement yeah. or, you know, the climate change. Voluntary. Yeah, voluntary, voluntary. Well, we'll listen to this. An international standard for monitoring production would also try to ensure that plastics are chemically safe, genuinely recyclable, and durable enough <laughs> to be reusable. Of the roughly 10 
thousand chemicals used in producing plastics, more than 2,400 have been found to be harmful, causing a range of health problems from asthma to infertility. Recycling is not currently viable for most plastics, but better production monitoring could shift that. Until now, recycling has been criticized for having little impact on the volume of plastic pollution. Just this past summer, they moved the percentage of plastics that were actually recycled down from 9.5% to 5%. So just think about that. Can I just say that if there was ever an oxymoron, it's chemically safe? I know. I know. I mean, come okay. on. But you have to listen to the rest of this because it's really important. So far, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and the plastics industry are backing <laughs> oh. the model used for the Paris Climate Agreement, which leaves countries to determine their own own action plans rather than being bound by common regulations, which is, of course, why we had this meeting in the first place, yeah. was to get everybody on the same page. We're going to have common regulations on plastic pollution worldwide. Oh, but not the U.S., nope. not Saudi Arabia, and of course, not the plastics industry. Really. Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So this is a, a, a short one, but really important because... We are in the midst of this. Uh, this was published in Grist, and the title is The World's Insurance Bill from Natural Disasters This Year, $115 billion. Extreme weather events have caused an estimated $115 billion in insured financial losses around the world this year, according to Swiss Re, the Zurich-based reinsurance giant. That's 42% higher than the 10-year average of $81 billion. The firm estimates that 50 billion to 65 billion of the total losses are a result of Hurricane Ian, the Category 4 storm that pummeled parts of Florida's west coast in late September with torrential rain, a 10-foot storm surge, and winds topping 140 miles per hour. Swiss Ray ranks Ian as the second costliest natural disaster ever in terms of insurance losses after Hurricane Katrina struck South Louisiana in 2005. It's not just severe storms causing the damage. In February and March, torrential downpour inundated vast swaths of northeastern Australia and racked up an estimated $4 billion in financial damages, more than any other natural disaster in their country's history. In June, a series of fierce thunderstorms in France sent large hailstones tearing through roofs and destroying miles of vineyards. The total insured losses were estimated to be about $5 billion. All of them combined to push losses above $100 billion for the second year in a row. $100 billion is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. You know, for, uh, for insurance companies to have to pay up, that's, uh, and you know, it's not going to get any better. I mean, our insurance costs are going to go up and up and up. Everybody's insurance costs because of these storms. Yeah, this is exactly right. Climate change has begun to pose major challenges to the industry as increasingly frequent and severe storms generate unprecedented financial loss. Yeah. Approximately 33 million homes on the U.S. Gulf Coast and the eastern seaboard, that's us, are at risk of hurricane damage, according to the property intelligence firm CoreLogic, with a total estimated replacement cost of $10.5 trillion. The country's coastal communities tend to be underinsured and chronically outdated federal flood maps fail to capture the risk to many flood-prone homes. Though uninsured homeowners can apply for federal funding after natural disasters, they are typically only able to recover a small fraction of their total losses. Yeah. This is going to happen more and more frequently in, in practically every area 
of the country. People want to live near the water, Patty. I know. They want to have they want to have a house right on the water. I understand, and those are the, those are the I mean, major areas. You know, but it is look at these storms that 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 you know that sweep across the the Midwest. Yeah, look at the yeah, tornadoes. Yeah, nature is having its way, and showing us we are not as smart as we thought. Okay, what okay. else you got? The last one, and this is also important, um, Democrats pressure EPA to ease off on chemical regulation. Democrats, that's, that's the key word in the title. This was written by Kevin Bogardis and, um, and E.A. Crunden um, from E.E. News. Prominent Democrats have urged the Biden administration to go easy on certain chemicals and toxics despite the party's focus on public health and the environment, according to correspondence obtained by E&E News. Congressional Republicans are usually skeptical of increased regulation of chemicals, but the letters show members of President Joe Biden's party have similarly sought a lighter touch from EPA on pesticides and chemicals used in farming. Many Democrats have showered the administration with letters to increase scrutiny of quote-unquote forever chemicals, but some that have also asked for leniency hail from agriculture-heavy congressional districts. Their targets have ranged from notorious substances under intense scrutiny to lesser-known disinfectants. Citing the importance of formaldehyde to agriculture, forestry, and small businesses, they are requesting that the EPA provide additional time to allow agencies like the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration to adequately comment on the draft assessment. Formaldehyde is a colorless, strong-smelling chemical often used in home-building projects. Despite mounting concerns and research linking the substance to cancer, industry leaders are seeking to shield it from aggressive standards. Democrat Representative Sanford Bishop called formaldehyde quote, a building block chemical, end quote, used in agricultural settings, including for preserving specimens in labs, disinfecting veterinary clinics, and as an additive for animal feeds. Okay, so we're putting formaldehyde in animal feed? That's something new to me. Yeah, I hadn't heard about yeah. that before. I mean, formaldehyde, we know, is a cancer-causing chemical. I think of it in plywood and in, you know, yep. cabinets and so yep. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pressed wood it, cabinets, yeah. right, exactly. And you can smell it. That's what the smell is. Yeah, I mean, is. they stopped using it in biology laboratories and in high schools and colleges yeah. and universities across the country because it's it's really dangerous. And, these, and the Democrats want a lighter touch. Let's they want a, a lighter touch a on, light. the re, on the regulations. They want a lighter touch on the assessments or the re-registration of some of these chemicals. What about a lighter touch for the people? What about a lighter touch for the people that got cancer? Okay, well, can I read a little bit more here? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Bishop added that conclusions in EPA's draft assessment around the health effects could result in regulatory actions with enormous economic impacts for this critical economic sector. This is where we have always been, which is risk versus benefit. And this is where these Democratic senators and representatives are coming down. They're from agricultural states, and the agribusinesses want to use these weed killers and you know these and formaldehyde of all things, which I had no idea was in animal feed, you know, and you know it's okay. I mean, they're willing; they are willing to accept a certain amount of risk it's, on our behalf. It's Thank a you. it's a cost benefit analysis, mm -hmm. but when they're assessing cost, they're only assessing the cost of the manufacturers. They're not assessing cost to the people who get right. sick. 
That's right. right. So if we had to, if, if that was part of the equation, if you had to measure what's the financial benefit for the company making this product, right. as opposed to the financial impact on people who get sick as a result right. of exposure to that product, it would be a no-brainer. Yeah, I know. But you have to understand that, that the EPA is actually doing their job here. They're yeah. actually doing their job. So the EPA draft assessment ignited anger across industry sectors after determining that breathing formaldehyde can result in a range of health impacts, including nasal cancers and myeloid leukemia. Wow. As with formaldehyde, Bishop's request was ultimately unsuccessful. EPA has stuck by its decision barring the neurotoxic pesticides application on food. EPA has a job to do, and as an advocate for the agricultural producers in Georgia's 2nd District and across the country, Bishop said, I have a job to do also. Wow. Putting chlorpyrifos on peanuts, just a, a, you know, a, a little comment here. Peanuts in children's diets, other than children who are highly allergic to peanuts, is, is a staple, right? Yeah. They, peanut butter and jelly is it. It's easy to make, and kids love it, and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know how many millions and millions and millions of peanut butter sandwiches so are made So what are you gonna do day? about this? You gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta claim Well, the own? EPA said no. So the, the what EPA are they said no. They'll have to find something else. Yeah. Okay. All, All right. right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Life moves fast. So fast, sometimes we can miss things that might appear more obvious to us if we just took the time to sit back and look at ourselves from a distance. We're all familiar with the scene of the family of four sitting in a restaurant, each one staring at their phones, ignoring the others at the table. Mom, dad, and the kids, each in their own little tech world, anxious to stay in touch, stay relevant, stay up to date with the very latest tweet or post or email or message. Oh, it's not a problem, we tell ourselves. We can handle it. The kids are fine. They love this stuff. Don't even think about taking their phones away from them, even for a few minutes. But are they fine? Putting aside concerns about exposure to RF radiation, are we all so sure about the impact of screen time on their emotional health? Not everyone is sure, especially those who are experts in the field. Currently, we're going through a mental health crisis. There's a mental health epidemic that's happening nationally. We have the highest depression rates, the highest suicide rates, the highest anxiety rates, the highest overdose rates, the highest ADHD rates uh, since we've been measuring any of those things. And so by any metric, we're undergoing a seismic shift in our mental health. We're not a very mentally well society. And the dots that I've connected and other researchers have connected is What's changed over the last 10 to 20 years to make us so depressed, anxious, alone, suicidal, uh, attentionally challenged with ADHD impacts? And what's happened has been this atomic bomb of screen time has shifted our culture. That's Dr. Nicholas Carderis, an Ivy League-educated psychologist and one of the country's foremost addiction experts. A former clinical professor at Stony Brook Medical Center in New York, he's the author of Glow Kids, the best-selling book about the clinical, neurological, and sociological aspects of technology addiction. This is the biggest driver of our mental health impacts 
let's call it our adverse mental health impacts. So social media, video games, smartphones, iPads, all of it, they're making us more sedentary, isolated, anxious, sleep deprived, and all the ingredients that go into not being a very mentally healthy person. It's just throwing a, an atomic bomb into our mental health. And, and, and there's hundreds, there's over 200 peer-reviewed studies that show increased screen time, depression, increased screen time, anxiety, increased screen time, ADHD. The research is pretty overwhelming and pretty clear that screen time is not good. And the short version of it is we're not wired, we're not evolutionarily designed to be sedentary, atomized, basement-dwelling, screen-staring creatures. That's not how we're made. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And here it is. This is one device. Technology you can hold in your hand and take wherever you want is not something humans have had for a long time. Actually, it's been just 15 years since the first iPhones were developed by Steve Jobs and his engineers at Apple. We're fairly slow moving in genetic change. You know, and the whole thesis behind the paleo diet is we're still in hunter-gatherer physiology. And we have this whole new modern way of eating and diets that just are anathema to our genetics. Well, that's, that's the parallel to what I'm talking about. We're, we're in hunter-gatherer social, emotional, psychological needs. We're profoundly genetically wired to be social, face-to-face -face social communal creatures because that gave the, the tribe strength to survive. You know, it was, it was a survival mechanism in our genetics that was put in there. And to be physically active and to do all sorts of other things that, that we really have changed in less than 30 years. So from an evolutionary standpoint, that's the blink of an eye. So we have a real disconnect. Over millennia, we've slowly adapted to our environment and developed certain characteristics that have made societies and social interactions work, more or less, for hundreds if not thousands of years. Yes, we've made progress, and new inventions have come along that have improved our lives, but they haven't fundamentally changed the way we interact with each other on a personal level, one-to-one. -one. But now we have a new way of living, using technology for hours every day, that has changed the way we interact with each other. Instead of talking to each other, a lot of us text. Even when people are in the room with us, a lot of us are constantly checking our phones for messages. And it's having a profound effect on our kids. We've changed the way we are as humans, and that's why I think we're seeing such negative health effects. So, you know, everything from uh, pediatric diabetes and obesity, and you know, from a physiological standpoint, to pediatric suicide, which is now a phenomenon that never used to exist in the past. Uh, adolescent suicide rates have doubled in the last 10 years, correlating with the the rise in social media and what that does to young people's self-concept and how they feel about themselves and cyberbullying and all those things. We've been entirely under-aware of this massive change in the way we are as humans because we, the adults, the adults in the room, were too smitten by the shiny devices. We fell in love with our gadgets and we were asleep at the switch about how they were really changing our society and more impacting our children.
Asleep at the Switch, a massive upheaval in our society based on new ways of communicating, and everyone, kids and adults alike, is caught up in it. It's social learning theory. You're modeling that kind of behavior. You're modeling that the screen is the, the main, the all, the uh, highest value that there can be. From a modeling perspective, we know from social learning theory that kids emulate their parents. But what I think is even more toxic, and it gets underspoken about, is what's come to be known as distracted parent syndrome, when parents are on their devices all the time. We're not meaningfully giving attention to our children. We're not emotionally nurturing them. And so there's a profound sense of neglect and abandonment that that child experiences. They've found that it's it's worse to be in the room and ignoring your child because of your electronic device than to not be home at all. Better that you go out into the car, go to the store, be out of the house, and at least your child experiences that, like, all right, mom and dad are doing something. But if mom and dad are next to me and they're ignoring me, wow, do I feel like not worthwhile. So that, that has a profound impact on the child's sense of self-worth. Parents distracted by their own technological gadgets, unable to appreciate the impact of their addiction on their children. Now, I was at the airport a couple weeks ago, and you see it all the time. There's, there's a little child pulling at their father or mother's pant leg, and the parent is swatting away at the child. And the child, you just see the look of rejection and sadness, and then they just sort of frown and go off. And, and you know, when that gets repeated thousands of times, that has a profound a shaping impact on that child in terms of how they view themselves. And we know that that's the key ingredient to other kind of maladaptive behaviors when that child gets older, everything from, you know, self-medicating addiction to all sorts of other uh, negative developmental impacts. Technology has invaded not only our personal lives at home and within our families, but at school as well, with a dramatic impact on our kids. There's a pedagogical conversation, and that's even that's a whole different track about what screen time is doing for students and what it's doing for as learners. I haven't seen one study that shows any advantage to screen time. In fact, most of the research showed that screen time hampers learning. Uh, most of the studies on education and screen time show that there's an adverse effect with screen time. So on a very basic level, it's not a good tool. And the higher grade levels, um, you know, as an aid, but it can't be the crutch. Uh, it can't be the primary source of teaching because it's not as effective as face-to-face -face teaching, the Socratic circle, where you're doing the give and take traditional method of education. The researchers all show that the best learning model is small learning environments, smaller classroom size, face-to-face -face teaching. So without any testing and without any data, how did educators become convinced that technology was the future of education anyway? Who was it who was pushing this idea? They were called EdTech entrepreneurs and Rupert Murdoch amongst them who were trying to cash in on what they saw as the great opportunity of technology in the classroom. And they were trying to wine and dine educators throughout the country to buy into tech in the classroom, and, and Rupert Murdoch had formed Hire Joe Klein, he used to be New York City school chancellor. He was making $200,000 a year as school's chancellor. Rupert Murdoch hired him 
with a million-dollar signing bonus and a million-plus annual salary to essentially be his educator legitimizing this, this new company, Amplify, where he was essentially trying to get every school district in the country to go digital. And, and he put a billion dollars into it. This was not a small investment. It, it didn't get the traction, obviously, and eventually they disbanded and it didn't move forward. But Rupert Murdoch has never been confused with anyone who cares about educational learning. This was a, a money grab. The Los Angeles School District had the same idea. John Deasy, the superintendent at the time, insisted that every child in the district, all 640,000 of them, should have an iPad and learning software. The cost, $1.3 billion of taxpayer money. That original deal was eventually scrapped in a scandal investigated by the FBI, but it's emblematic of the problem. Technology and education could produce fantastic profits, whether it worked for kids or not. There's a research show it doesn't work as effectively as traditional education, but now you bring in this digital Trojan horse into the classroom with all the mental health impacts. So now you're bringing a stimulant and a distractor into the classroom. So now you're raising, you know, there's been a ton of research primarily by Dr. Dimitri Christakis that shows the ADHD effect of too much screen time. So now you're, you know, raising the potential for ADHD for children, which is why ADHD has gone up 50% and goes up 5% every year. It's a digital Trojan horse. We've led it into our classrooms, we've led it into our homes, and we were thinking that it was educational. We were sold the Kool-Aid that we drank thirstily, that this was an educational solution. And, and there was this sort of, I think, with a lot of educated parents, it was keeping up with the Joneses. They were afraid that, well, little Johnny next door got an iPad and he's 10. I don't want my child to be behind in our new technological world. That, that was the Kool-Aid that I think a lot of parents, well-intentioned parents, drank without realizing it was just the opposite, that let your child's brain develop normally, prime your child's brain in the way that we know it was going to help your child's brain development the best, and then expose them to technology at an age-appropriate level. Dr. Nicholas Carderis, founder and chief clinical officer of Maui Recovery in Hawaii, Omega Recovery in Austin, and The Launch House in New York. He's the author of the best-selling book, Glow Kids, and an expert on digital addiction. For more information about kids and technology in schools, you might want to visit the website we created about this issue. It's called techsafeschools.org. That's all one word, techsafeschools.org. And there you'll find a wealth of information, starting with the legal obligation of school officials to provide a safe and healthy environment for students. We've also included some of the peer-reviewed science that demonstrates biological harm from RF radiation, even at levels far below the old, outdated federal guidelines, and remediation efforts any school can make to reduce the amount of RF exposure in their classrooms as they begin to wind down the near-total dependence on technology and get back to what actually works to educate our kids one-on-one -on -one time with good teachers. I also recommend that you pick up a copy of Dr. Carderis's book, Glow Kids, from your local bookstore. It's really a must-read for all parents, especially those who are concerned about the amount of time their kids are spending on digital devices. 
Don't sleep with your phone. Don't allow your kids to sleep with their phones. Turn off your router at night and maybe think about banning phones at the dinner table. All good recommendations from experts to help you and your kids live a better, safer, and healthier life. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again at greenstreetnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Patty and I will be back next week with another show. Thanks for listening.